0: bereavement room is a podcast for our community faith and culture featuring representative voices from across the uk and i am your host kulsima ali hi i'm hatim aldawi and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hello i'm priya ahmed and you're listening to bereavement room podcast hello i'm Bushra malik and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hi i'm tanya hardcastle and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hey, what's going on? It is Sly King, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Lydia Kirkland, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Abigail Chewett and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Rooms Podcast. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining me for this final farewell wash-up episode. Time has certainly flown in this room over the past two and a half years, and so much has happened. It's been a bit of a roller coaster of a journey, hasn't it? And we've heard from an array of guests from across the diaspora. I have loved hosting this podcast, and I am sad that it is coming to its official end. And who knows, you know, maybe I'll do a bonus episode at Christmas. I know it's taken a while for me to get this episode out. Uh, I have been incredibly busy, you know, and a grieving and a coexisting life just happens. I've also had a bit of an update on my physical health. And so i've just been taking time out really for me what have i been up to then well i've spent some time at the beach who knew that there were lovely beaches not far from london i've had an incredible Uh, summer, the weather hasn't been brilliant, but I think I got quite lucky on the days that I headed over to the beach because it was just so hot and the best place to be when we are having decent weather in Britain is definitely by the ocean. So we're here now, we're here on the final episode and there's quite a lot to cover off today. Before I get stuck into today's episode, Uh, I want to do a little bit of a recap of why I created Bereavement Room. So I created my podcast because I was discriminated when I went to therapy and further othered when I entered these white dominated grief spaces. My experiences clearly didn't belong. I was the alien, the one with the weird culture uh, and other faith apparently. Further alienated, excluded and exiled when I committed blasphemy by speaking out on the National Health Service negligence, inequalities and disparities. Hence me creating this wonderful space for unspoken and unfiltered truths, where I felt safe amongst the diaspora. Now I tried to record this episode a couple of nights ago but got very distracted by a bottle of red wine Uh, and the next thing I knew I just... I don't think I was in the right mindset, not because I was drunk, it's a dealkalized wine I don't drink, it's a 0.0% and at the moment I'm very easily just distracted. I've got a lot going on and since the last episode, which was the penultimate episode, I've been disconnected from the podcast, I, I guess. But we're here now and I know you've been patiently waiting for this final wash-up episode, the process. So let's begin with counseling and psychotherapy because this was a consistent theme throughout my podcast. It's a question that I asked all of my guests. After I had been discriminated in therapy, I wanted to know what other people's experiences of therapy is and whether they even thought about going to therapy, in fact. So did they have it and if they chose not to, why? We heard from an array of guests with lots of different experiences. We're not a monolith in this room. Uh, we all come from different cultures and communities and faiths. And so there was a very diverse experience expressed here. I have always said that counselling and psychotherapy is very white. There are certain things that I am not comfortable with when it comes to therapy, both on the training side of things, but also from the client perspective. I'm gonna talk about the client perspective for now to paint a little bit of a picture of what's been going on for me over the past year. Well, in 2020, essentially. Um, You all know that my dad died very suddenly and unexpectedly in hospital. It's something that I've reported to the regulators because I've been told that, yes, there were poor quality of care standards of my dad. There may have even been a clinical error. It's something that they're looking into and investigating. And so I don't really know what's happening at the moment, as it is with the investigators. And when they've finished doing their investigations, they'll come back to me, um, hopefully at the end of the year. But as you can imagine, it was a massive shock to me that my dad had died, he was not expected to die. Doesn't matter how old someone is, I do get a little bit irritated when people ask me how old my dad was because that's neither here or there. I think this is more about the fact that um, my dad was not supposed to die and we were not informed that he was going to die. Uh, He went into hospital for for a minor thing and he came out dead. So last year was not the best year for me, grieving in lockdown was incredibly hard. You know, grieving is difficult anyway, but when you're in a lockdown, it's a whole other thing, because you are not going to work, um, you're working from home, and you're not able to see your family if you don't live with your family, and you can't see your friends, you can't even go for a nice, comforting lunch, or have a coffee or a walk. It's so isolating. I don't think I've ever experienced grief to that level of isolation. And particularly because like, my dad was my best friend. He was my last living parent. And when your last living parent dies, you are anchorless. There is nothing holding you, right? Uh, it is very much the end of a chapter of your life. It's the end of an era. And so for me, uh, it was a huge... Shock to my system, and I couldn't wrap my head around why my dad had died. Uh, if I had a bit more context to why he died, then maybe I'd feel a little bit differently. But this whole thing has just been a massive uh, head fuck. Is the only way I can really uh, express it. Apologise for my French, but there's going to be a lot of French today. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I. I was very deeply down and it turned out that I had depression, my GP diagnosed me with depression and said I want to put you on antidepressants, I declined because I don't like being medicated when I know something can be managed holistically, so I said well thank you but no thank you and I left her office, she didn't offer me any any other alternative. Um, And I was about to start therapy and this is what I want to talk to you about. So there are two services in my borough These two services um, are the ones that are recommended by our GP practice uh, Or any charity you might go to they'll they'll look it up by postcode. and so one of them is a mainstream uh, mental health charity I went to speak to them, and they said, well, we can offer you 12 sessions, we need to do an assessment, etc, etc. So I went through that. But in the back of my mind, I was like, 12 sessions isn't enough for what's been happening with me, and I know that I probably need more than 12 sessions. I said to the lady, well, if it's only given me 12 sessions, is it possible to get someone that is, you know, close to my community, that understands my community? and I asked for a Muslim therapist and they didn't have any on their books. So following on from that, uh, they said the closest we can get you to diversity here um, is an Indian therapist. Now, no offense to anyone that's listening here, but that's going to be really difficult for me as a Bangladeshi and also as a Muslim. Uh, to have an Indian therapist especially if they're not Muslim because you know there are lots of people in the Indian community that are Muslim Uh, the Indian community is very diverse I said look you know I had a really bad feeling about that Uh, my intuition and gut feeling was saying no don't do it don't waste your time don't you know traumatize yourself you know you know how precious time is just this isn't going to work for you. If you don't have a Muslim therapist or even a Bangladeshi or Black therapist then I'm not interested. I don't I don't want to I don't want to waste my time. So I canceled that and I decided to go with the other service because the other service doesn't limit you to how many sessions you can have. It's open-ended for as long as you want. But of course the drawback is going to be that they allocate you to the next available therapist. The next available therapist happened to be a white-skinned Irish woman. Now, you always hear the minoritized communities always saying, oh, the Irish get it. If anybody understands prejudice, it's the Irish. Oh, how wrong I was. Oh, how wrong we all are about that. Um, she didn't get it. But anyway, I'm going to take you through what happened. So I had this Irish therapist for a couple of months. And, um, I had a consultation with her, I said look I'm Muslim and there's a lot of things I need to discuss in relation to like Islam and my experience of the world and I said to her do you have any experience in the Muslim community and she goes oh I've got extended family members that are Muslim and I've been to lots of Muslim funerals. So I was like okay maybe this could work even though she's a white skinned Irish woman. but I was, you know, I, I look back and I just think, Cosima, you're so silly, like, you know what you need, and because I can't pay for therapy, again, when you can't pay for therapy, there are some restrictions and limitations, and you will have to kind of put up with whatever it is that they can give you, or what's available in your PACE code, and there aren't really Muslim therapists where I live, like, I live in Greater London, it's a very white area, You're you're just not going to find that. So... I gave this white-skinned Irish therapist uh, the benefit of my doubt and of course the first few sessions you're going to be venting a little bit, you're going to be talking about what happened and so the therapist may not say much, they may nod, they may acknowledge but I, bearing in mind I had been with this woman like six months and it got to a point where every word I would say, every sentence I would say, she would just repeat it like a parrot and I guess you might... Decipher that as well, she's just paraphrasing. But the way I understand paraphrasing and counselling is you do it within context, right? To clarify something. But for her, this woman in my clinical encounter, it was just constant, like repeating every word and sentence. And I just thought to myself, is she going to repeat everything I say? Because this isn't therapy to me. She's not encouraging me to explore my feelings or how I feel feel about you know my place in the world and my experiences and being at the receiving end of nhs negligence which was another thing when i spoke about nhs negligence her facial expression just gave it away she couldn't believe what i was saying and what my beliefs were and i don't care with if you agree with me or don't agree with me but hide your opinion don't make it so transparent that you think that this isn't valid, what I'm saying, that that you're overlooking it so much, that it's not an important part of my experience when it is, when I have experienced negligence at the absolute worst level that you could experience it, and not just once, but more than once, anyway, I just kind of, I sort of, I sort of turned a blind eye to that, I guess you could say I turned a blind eye to that because I realised the mass British public will not agree with what I think about the National Health Service. The people that understand my pain when it comes to the National Health Service and healthcare inequalities and disparities are those that have been at the receiving end, those that have been there and they know what it's like. And perhaps the people that work in the NHS um, and the whistleblowers. They're the ones that are going to get it. For this, white-skinned Irish therapist, this woman, she was not gonna get it because she's not gone through that. She's not been at the receiving end. And even if you don't get it, just hide what you think. Like, you don't have to be so transparent in your expressions. So I didn't really like her line of questioning around that. It was a bit too policing for me, if you like. Again, as a few months had passed, you know, I really needed this therapy because, yes, my dad died. And it was physically affecting me to the point that I was curled up in a bowl, in my bed, in immense pain, right? I'm not talking about emotional pain, I'm talking about physical pain. I couldn't breathe. And that's why I'd essentially gone to my GP, because I said I had really bad chest pains. I thought I was having a heart attack. And she said, you're depressed, it's not a heart attack you're not having you know goes, you're having like breathing difficulties because of your grief and you're very depressed and you will have heart palpitations when you're depressed like that of course me seeing the therapist should have helped kind of calm that down a little bit um and I've also got suicide ideation which I've never experienced before and the additional layer to that as a Muslim if you're suicidal that's a whole other thing because we don't that's such a big sin in Islam, right? And we're growing up to kind of how we perceive suicide is like, it's the absolute worst thing that you could do. Um, and of course, because it's prohibited in our faith. And if you're feeling suicidal, you know, it's it's a really scary thing because we grow up you know, with the thought process that we don't do that. We don't, we grow up with that thought process of, how suicide is such a huge sin um, and we don't really talk about mental illnesses and mental health that much and how that sort of intersects with all of this. So I've never experienced suicide ideation, I'm experiencing it for the first time, my thoughts are very clouded, the things that I'm thinking about, the images that I have in my head, it's not good. So I'm scared of my own brain <laughs> at this point and I don't know what's going on with me and I'm ripping my apartment to pieces turning it upside down i am in immense pain and this therapist really just didn't help and it got to the point where she said oh i've learned so much about muslims i've learned i feel like this has been such an educational lesson for me hello i'm not here to educate you lady this is meant to be a healing process for me me processing what's going on I'm not here to educate you. What the fucking fuck? Like, even if she thought that, keep that at the back of your mind, right? If you feel like you've had an educational session, don't say that out loud. Because it's exhausting for minoritized people to have to always explain themselves. And for her, she's just benefiting from it. Because she's clocking up her accredited hours. And she's benefiting... Well, what should be happening is I should be saying out loud how helpful this session is for me, right? Not, oh, well, you know, thanks for listening, bye, kind of thing. Um, These therapy sessions should have been about me and not educating her, if that makes sense. So I just felt really exhausted as it was, and she clearly was bu- bluffing She was clearly bluffing when she said that she had experience of working with Muslim communities. And of course, that should have been a red flag for me. And I ignored it. Because at that point, I was so heavy in my grief. I was in so much physical pain. And I was severely depressed at that point. I'm still depressed, but not to that level of depression there are no other words to describe what I was going through you know with a lockdown being depressed having suicide ideation and then your podcasting as well which was massively helpful and very healing I think that sort of helped keep me together in the past year to be able to talk to my guests about their experiences and touch on my own otherwise I don't know what would have happened to me because this therapist weren't helping and I wasn't getting any help from the GP, not constructive help, they just wanted to medicate me. I conclude that if you have money, always get the therapist that you want, right? Have a little checklist of the things that you're looking for to meet your needs. If you can't afford it, always have these consultations, and at any moment you have a red flag, like, just sack them off, which is what I did. Oh, red flag after red flag, I sacked this lady off, but the reason... I eventually sacked her off is because she got sloppy with the Zoom invites. She'd send them to me 10 minutes before the session. And also because I kept having these weird therapy hangovers, which I don't think are normal. When you start your day with therapy, it just ruins the rest of your day. That's the way I see it. So I wanted them in the evening because then I could sleep it off, right? But she didn't want them in the evening. Of course she doesn't. She's the counsellor. She doesn't want to take someone else's... um, carry someone else's pain to bed with her, because she's going to have a sleepless night, whereas I would have offloaded, got everything I need to say, had my session, and had probably a peaceful night's sleep. And so starting the day with therapy is quite hard for me. I can't speak for anyone else, because you've got other things to get on with in the day, and your brain is just buzzing with all sorts of thoughts and feelings, and you would have done so much work in that session, or talking in my case, because I just, it was like I was talking to a brick wall, because The only time she responded is when she was being a parrot. So (laughs) it was exhausting for me. And I said to her, you know, I think it's going to help me if I don't have a session every Friday anymore. Can I please have these therapy sessions every other week? And she was like, okay. But I could tell she was a bit disappointed. But she's only disappointed because she needs to clock up her accredited hours. And losing, you know, 50 minutes um, is, you know, Losing those 50 minutes is not going to be helpful for where she needs to be in life. Uh, So I could tell that kind of irritated her a little bit. And I gave her some like constructive feedback. Stop getting sloppy with the invites because I need to know that the session is happening on a Friday. She took quite a lot of holiday as well and was unavailable at certain times. So it wasn't always consistently every Friday. And I just thought it's better if we have it every other week. Didn't go down well with her, but we did go to every other week. And I didn't really like that she was getting sloppy with the invites. I'm an organised person, it's better to send it to me earlier on so I can just block out my diary, not ten minutes before the session. And bearing in mind, at this point, I'd stopped going to my desk, I'd stopped showering and um, getting dressed and putting myself together to come on the webcam. I said to her, you know, this is getting hard for me, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm not going to leave my bed, can I just talk through the audio? Which she was fine with, Um, and we did that for a bit, but I think it was a bit frustrating for her because she's just, you know, she's staring into a screen, there's no one there, she can only hear my voice, but this is what suited me at the time, because I was in so much pain, and I just, I don't want anyone seeing me, like, in this, you know, how much of a mess I look um and then eventually i realized it it must be frustrating for her so i switched on the webcam and i just you know used to come to my therapy sessions looking like shit from my bed um and we talked but i think it's really hard to have therapy with someone that clearly doesn't understand where you fit in the world and your experience of the world. So when you're describing certain situations to them, like if I was ever talking about the workplace and what it's like to be a brown woman in the workplace, of which I have many issues with, um, she didn't, she just couldn't understand that. And I touched on some of my previous experiences in the workplace and what it's like being interviewed and the different types of feedback I get, et cetera, et cetera. and the power dynamics that can play out in the workplace, but she just—you could tell she wasn't buying it. Uh, she was not able to hold space for that. You can tell when someone—it becomes very apparent when someone understands that experience of what it's like to be a brown person in the workplace. I know the black community can completely relate to that. um Black and brown folk just don't have a good time in the workplace. I. I have really suffered, I think, in the workplace. I have gone through lots of experiences that have been incredibly difficult. So when you're having to kind of speak about these things, it's really quite hard uh, to have an open conversation about that with someone that's not able to meet you where you are, uh, especially if they can't be bothered to hide their expressions. So she was getting on my nerves, the parrot lady, I'm just going to call her the parrot lady instead of the white skinned Irish woman, because I'm probably going to be offending someone who's listening to this podcast, I'll just call her the parrot lady, so the parrot lady was getting on my last nerve, and I said to her, you know, I don't know if this is working uh, and this all came to a head when I was about 10 minutes late to a session. But That's because she sent the Zoom link to me five minutes before the session. So I didn't think it was happening. And when you're in so much pain physically and emotionally, you're out of sync anyway. And so she just cocked off at 10 past. And I said to her, like... You didn't even send me a reminder. You didn't even send me a text like you usually do. And the reason that she would stopped doing that is because I gave her constructive feedback and I would stopped my weekly sessions and made them bi-weekly. So she became a little bit more difficult and not as accommodating. So it was kind of like if you're a few minutes late, she'll clock off and she won't even bother texting you or emailing you to say, look, I'm online. Are you okay? Are you there? Uh, Bearing in mind I had suicide ideation, I could have been dead. But she didn't bother to follow it up she didn't bother to say oh are you okay how what's your week been like i'm on i am on the zoom session right now uh i can't see that you're here and she didn't do that and that was the one session where i had overslept um and I, and I get it that therapists, you have to respect their time, but it wasn't a problem for her before when we only had 30-minute sessions when I was struggling in the morning and I just wasn't sure if I could talk about my grief on that particular day. And she said, well, if you only want to do 30 minutes, we can do 30 minutes. But as soon as I gave her constructive feedback, as soon as I went from weekly to biweekly, she started being a bitch, right? She started being difficult. She got sloppy with the invites. If you weren't there by a certain time, she just... You know, she just had enough of me at that point, I think. I don't think she was ready to hear about what I had to say about the system and what it's like to be at the receiving end of the system. But sharing stories about my dad or what he liked for breakfast, you know, the type of person he was, my relationship with him. She was all for that. But she didn't want to hear about the NHS negligences. She didn't want to hear about me as a brown woman being at the receiving end of inequality in the workplace she like she wasn't having it if i was sat with a muslim therapist or a black female therapist which i have in the past through work as a favor um it's a completely different experience they get that it's understood what i've been through and they're able to hold that space safely for me to explore how i feel about it but this parrot lady (laughs) the white skinned Irish therapist she never fucking clue. And it's because she's in the latter end of her life, retraining to be a therapist, done her training actually, is now crediting herself. She's on her placement. She couldn't give a two fucks about me, right? This is all about her to get accredited and take on the clients that she wants to take on and so that she can get away with paraphrasing you at every word and sentence. That is not therapy. Can I just say to all the counsellors out there, you know, I'm not a qualified counsellor. I'm not a counsellor by any means, but I have spent some time at one of the best schools and I know the difference between being a parrot and paraphrasing in context, just fucking stop it, stop harming people in therapy, okay, because if you think we can't see through it, we can, and so that's what happened last year with therapy once again, it hasn't worked out for me, oh goodness Colseema, what are you gonna do, well, what did I do, how did I get out of this very dark period? I had logged onto an Instagram Live via Psychologies magazine and there was a a woman talking about uh, the impact of writing and journaling and I was so inspired by this woman. Throughout that session I was engaged with everything that she was saying and she was talking about how journaling and writing has changed her life and how it's a part of her lifestyle. And then it made me remember that I used to have a secret diary several secret diaries as a child and a teenager because you're going through a lot as a child and a teenager lots of changes and hormonal things and also I had a lot of child bereavements as a kid with grandparents and this little girl that I used to have play dates with in primary school who had died of leukemia I think it was or lymphoma uh, and so I had all these child bereavements as a child that I haven't talked about in this podcast uh, perhaps it's one for the bonus episodes that I I remember having these secret diaries and writing in them, and it really, really helped. Uh, Really thankful to my cousin who had gifted me with a secret diary on my birthday when I was about seven or eight, I think. And that's kind of how I got into journaling. So when I went on this Instagram Live via Psychologies magazine and was hearing from this woman that was talking about nature and writing in trees, I was just in awe and it reminded me of how good I used to feel um, when I was writing, I was always a little bit shy, I guess, to share what I write. And so it's always been a bit of a secret. And especially if you're writing in a journal, then that's obviously a secret. You don't know want anyone to find your journal. But I have blogged in the past. I've only just really shared it with like my closest friends. And I thought to myself, I can't deal with this this white-skinned Irish woman anymore. Um, and because I'm sacking her off, i am going to dig out my journals because i did carry on journaling but a bit more on and off in my young adult adult years and so i started journaling and that really really helped and so i was ready to sack off the therapist and i sacked her off Uh, And the other thing that I should mention about her, actually, before I forget, she was incredibly unprofessional, because I didn't quite sack her off, I just said this isn't working. And what she should have done was said, well, let's talk about it, let's jump on a session and see how we can help you, what works and what doesn't work. But she didn't want to, what she did instead was, she just returned my referral to the office and she said, you know, you'll be allocated to someone else, but they didn't bother allocating me to somebody else. Uh, I never ever heard from them ever again and she yeah she was just really unprofessional the, the right thing to do as a therapist if it isn't working with your client is have an open and honest conversation with that client and say let's see if we can work through a few things and how I can better help support you and make a decision on if we want to move forward or not that's the best way to do it not end it abruptly after someone has shared a deeply personal account of their life with you for six months I've trusted you with my experiences. And you just end it abruptly with two lines. Sorry, I couldn't help you. I passed it on back to the office. Anyway, fuck that bitch. I ain't got time to talk about these shoddy therapists and their harm in therapy. Always talking about how they're human first. Yeah, you're not human first, quite frankly. Uh, I don't care about your humanity if you're going to put a client at risk. I started journaling anyway and... This is what saved me last year. I journaled and I journaled. I wrote and I wrote. And it was like a weight had lifted off my shoulder. Alongside praying and nourishing my soul with walks in nature. Getting back into journaling is probably one of the best things that I did for myself. It sort of brought my body back into... A center like I felt more centered and not disconnected so at one if that kind of makes sense whereas before I felt very disconnected and not centered and then as soon as I started writing I my body just kind of came back and centered itself and reconnected and as soon as I, I had ended the therapy with that white skinned parrot oh my goodness, I just felt so much better, the suicide ideation had dissipated, and I was, you know, I wasn't going through any more of this physical pain that I was feeling in my stomach, where I was just curled up uh, in a fetus position, and just crying uncontrollably, I wasn't turning my apartment upside down and breaking shit, you know, everything just kind of dissipated away from me, because I was able to write and say everything that I wanted to. Yes, I'm still grieving for my dad and I'm still navigating this complaint with the regulators. But the way journaling has helped dissipate this ideation and I'm only just talking from my experience, this may not work for everyone. So just little health warning there. This is me, myself and I, my body, we're all wired differently. I honestly believe that journaling saved me I don't know what I would have done, because that therapist was very, very harmful, she abruptly ended sessions, I wasn't even rude when I gave my feedback, right, it was very constructive, and polite, and I was just like, this isn't working, and you're being a bit of a, you know, a bit difficult, just because I've given you a bit of feedback, and stopped my weekly sessions to bi-weekly, to any therapist and counsellor that's listening out there, like, you've really got to take a good look at yourself, particularly when you're working with like black and brown folk, where it's not in their choice and they may have chosen someone else as their therapist, um, but they desperately needed to speak to somebody. You really got to take a good look at yourself and say to yourself, are you the right person to understand a minoritized? person's perspective and their experience of the world because I would argue I don't think that you are I don't think you're best placed for that I think you'll cause more harm than good but of course I appreciate there'll be people in the diaspora that will not want anyone from their communities giving them therapy because of whatever's happened in their life but for me and largely what I heard in this room I think we all want someone that that can relate to being at the receiving end of the system, what it's like to be minoritized in one way or another, oppressed by these awful societal norms and systems that we live and breathe. And so that's the story of cancelling and psychotherapy for me last year and where I conclude. It really is going to depend on the context of your experience of the world and where you're at. And for me, I will never, ever go back to a therapist that is not Bangladeshi, but is not Muslim. So that means that I could have a Muslim therapist of any ethnicity, um, or I could just have a Bangladeshi therapist, right? I will never go outside of that. But I know sitting here as I speak into the microphone, so openly and vulnerably sharing with you, that I don't think I'm ever gonna go back to therapy. I found other means. And these means are nourishing my soul with exercise, with journaling, with traveling, with taking time out, having moments in solitude. I love solitude. Solitude centers me. It brings me back to myself. My body is no longer disconnected. If I ever go back to therapy, it will be with the right therapist. But this saga, this whole entire saga, right, And hearing people's experience in this room, if you wanna know what I've learned, I know never to go to a therapist that doesn't meet my needs. And I would say the same to the rest of you. Think about what it is that you need. Because we know as grieving people that time is precious and you can't get time back. Once you've lost it, it's gone. So why waste any further time Talking about a deeply personal account of your life and your traumas with the wrong therapist. Because they're going to get more out of it than you will. What are you going to get out of it? Just harm. Anyway, if the white-skinned Irish parrot is listening to my podcast right now, shame on you, lady. Shame on you. Right, so moving on. If you cast your mind back to the trailer of season three, I talked about... Uh, communication between minoritized communities. I also talked about um, when we work with a community that is different to our own, do we serve them in the best possible way? Do we serve them at 100%? Or do our prejudices and biases come out to play during these encounters? You know, at the end of the day, human beings are fallible. I sometimes wonder, because a lot of these services, like policing, psychology, psychotherapy, counselling, teaching, nursing, doctors, you've got human beings driving these jobs, right? You don't know what they're carrying while they're doing these jobs. And so you always really have to be kind of ahead of your game. You have to always be kind of thinking ahead for yourself and not too reliant on them and I sometimes wonder if there is a bit of a communication breakdown between minoritized communities. We already know there's a problem with the way uh, white people serve black and brown communities when they're interacting and what those power dynamics and privileges are like but I wonder what it's like between let's say for example uh, the black community and the South Asian community when they're working together or serving one another whether that be free nursing, social work, teaching, psychology, policing etc. So I'm going to give an example, uh, I'm going to read out an article that I found on the British Medical Journal from the nursing standards and before I do you know I just want to say when one person lets a side down right it's a reflection on the entire service. I don't really believe in vocations I think a job is a job and some people screw it up because every job or if you think that your job is a vocation is a human being behind that job that's serving you and delivering that service. So let's go to this British Medical Journal article which I will tag in the episode show notes. It's about enhancing communication with patients from minority ethnic groups. And it's written by Dr Gloria Coupe at the Faculty of Health and Science at the University of Hull. Uh, She wrote it last year so it's a fairly new article. She says communication is central to successful caring relationships and to effective team working. Listening is as important as what we say and do and essential for no decision about me without me. Communication is the key to a good workplace Of benefits for those in our care and staff alike. I believe this is probably a reference she's taken from an academic journal or book. She then sort of reflects on the, according to the 2011 census and the minority ethnic population in the United Kingdom, Uh, and that is expected to increase she goes on to talk about in this uh bmj article that effective communication in nursing is seen as one of the key factors in determining healthcare needs of ethnic minorities she then goes on to talk about the, the government's objectives and what they've set and their commitment right to hear the voices of people who use care services as well as those of carers to improve the quality of care and support Nurses are key to patients' experience in the caregiving environment as they are with patients more than any other professionals. Therefore, if the government's objective and priorities are to be achieved, effective communication between nurses and patients need to be at the heart of caregiving. It is therefore important for nurses to have skills that will enable them to care effectively for people of different cultures. However, in situations where the culture of the patient and the culture of the nurse are different, this relationship can be challenging she says it's demonstrated that healthcare workers can find it challenging to communicate with people from different ethnic groups and to overcome these challenges nurses need to develop sensitivity to cultural diversity stereotyping and prejudice general skills of good communication and specific skills to negotiate communication barriers and then she'll talk a little bit about literature and communication with minority elders that is concerned with translation of either the spoken or the written word and how age concern for example promotes the practice of producing translated materials from english to other languages for patients who may not be fluent in english uh, where barriers to communication originate with both seekers and providers of information so you know this also includes the use of medical technology lack of communication skills amongst healthcare practitioners as well as lack of time. And then patients often report not receiving the answers to their questions, not asking for clarification to misunderstood information for fear of being labeled difficult. I've seen this play out time and time again in healthcare, and it's rife within the National Health Service. And she talks in a little bit more detail, it's a really easy to read article about being aware of values, beliefs, recognising how these influence attitudes and behaviours. In addition to nurses should recognise the historical events that have affected particular ethnic groups and understand how oppression, discrimination and stereotyping may affect people differently, both professionally and professionally. personally and moreover nurses should take note of the general style of communication in a particular culture and of the respect afforded to different age groups above all nurses need to be aware that people are individuals and that stereotypes should be avoided in order to avoid causing offense Uh, and even leading to death I would add Gloria You know, all this poor communication of stereotyping, lack of understanding and derogatory attitudes are often cited by minoritized patients as key issues in care. So she does talk a lot more about, you know, human caring is seen as a universal phenomenon and the patterns and expression of caring vary among cultures and within cultures and how nurses need to develop an in-depth understanding of different cultures to provide individualistic what I would call uh, holistic care so effective culturally aware communication is the cornerstone of patient-centered care for ethnic minoritized patients and nurses must ensure that they develop maintain and enhance the skills required to deliver this there's a lot more detail to that I've caught it sort of um I have really sort of skimmed read that to you and I'd recommend that you read it and I will tag it in the episode show notes I do wonder if we are serving our communities at the utmost respect and i wonder what it is that we carry and how seriously we take that because if we don't it does lead to death and i've seen it happen in the case of my dad which i believe they just let him deteriorate they were very slow to act Um, There was a communication barrier there because he had deteriorated and also then a communication barrier of not calling us when he deteriorated so we were robbed of a goodbye and I think it's interesting that you know she's talking about this this is nursing standards this isn't just in nursing it's also in policing we've seen it in policing where things have gone wrong and women have lost their lives they've died because the police haven't done their job properly we've also seen it in social work where social workers haven't carried out their job in the way that they should have and adhered to policies in the way that they should have and so this is rife it, it just goes on and on and on and i'm picking at these professions because it seems a lot of these mistakes happen in these sort of vocate you know the people that see these professions as vocations uh, it seems to be incredibly common and a bit scary because we're so reliant on these services and so are our children and vulnerable people in the community. I just wonder how much of that comes into play and how much of that leads to death and poor quality standards of care, just like Gloria uh, talked about in great detail there. Really important to talk about this. I'm not going to shy away from it, which kind of brings me on to the next topic right um the divide i also said in the start of the trailer of season three we are not at peace with one another okay and There is something deeply disturbing about the racial divide. I'm not going to take white people out of the context here because we all know how we feel about these white supremacy systems and uh, power and privilege and the dynamics that play out with our white counterparts. But I want to talk about the black community specifically and the South Asian community. And I'm going to be really real with you as someone that has cultivated solidarity in this room. That is so important to me personally because of who I am and the experiences that I grew up with as a child, you know, always gravitating to the nearest brown or black person for safety is something that I am really surprised how much tension actually there is between our communities because of perhaps an incident we went through with someone of the opposite community whether it was in school or the corner shop or a relationship or something someone said or because of all the history books that we've read and I feel like in this day and age we really need to focus more on cultivating solidarity and being united together while speaking about the issues that impact our community but also coming together and supporting one another and I think there's something very beautiful about that there is a lot of beauty in it because yes there are huge differences but also you'll find there are similarities and that all roads lead back to one road and one thing that I'm not comfortable with which is uncomfortable is us screaming at each other uh playing the oppression olympics we're all oppressed in different ways (laughs) don't really like the oppression olympics and the way we just talk over one another and shout and scream at each other been to many events in the past year listened to quite a few podcasts there's a lot of anger there and i think anger is healthy you know when we're expressing it it's good to get your frustrations out and express it in the way that you need to as long as you're not harming anyone but i have to say i listened to a few podcasts and entered a few rooms and events and it sort of brought tears to my eyes because I just thought, oh my God, man, we all hate each other. Like, <laughs> the hatred that we have between communities, it's so sad and there's always this bit of like one-upmanship and I don't like that. I think it's really sad. And I think it's made worse when it's met with silence, I'm just going to say it, I do feel the South Asian community kind of responds in silence to that when the black community talk about it. So yeah, I wanted to bring that up because obviously in this room, in the bereavement room, you heard from several members of the black community from all over, and you've heard from several members of people from South Asian and minority other communities So for me, you know, I'm all for solidarity. I feel safer in spaces where there is solidarity. And I'm a little bit sad, actually, when I think about how much tension there is between our our communities. And I think a lot of this probably comes down to um, how Indian communities specifically have assimilated into British way of life due to history and perhaps some of the advantages they had as being zamindaris um, back in the lands that were hired by the British, and then coming over to the UK and then having some advantages. I think when they set up life in the UK in comparison to other marginalised communities like Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, we're so badly affected socioeconomically um it's there is a stark difference between Bangladeshis, pakistanis and indians this gets minimized lost and sort of diluted it i don't really like that and i think that we need to be able to tell our individual stories so that people are educated and that we're not lumped into one group you've heard me say it before i don't like the label south asian because we're not a monolith, we're very, very diverse. And I think some communities have a closer proximity to whiteness than others. <laughs> and, you know, I'll often hear when I go to the black events, for example, that there is probably a lack of education on understanding the South Asian community. And there are different nuances, I guess. And I feel it's important to mention that because it's always reflected how. Um, it's always reflected in data how back Bangladeshis are suffering, I think, socioeconomically, and Pakistanis. But you don't really hear that often of the Indian community. But again, just want to highlight the Indian community is very diverse within itself also. And I don't like this tension between our communities. I feel like we could work together, sort of, you know come on man like you can cut the tension with a knife and then everyone's just shouting at each other and screaming at the top of their lungs and I and that's why I love bereavement room because I did this the way that I wanted to do it and it was bringing everyone together not just my community of which many people said why didn't you focus on the south asian diaspora why did you have to invite everyone to the room why didn't you just focus on one faith why did you have to invite you know people from all faiths well this is the bereavement room and i'm talking about death so i'm going to invite everyone because death affects everyone as I mentioned in the season one trailer, more than labels because we are more than these labels and I cannot stand all these minority, ethnic minority BAME and I cringe at myself when I accidentally say it because I do. I've been living and breathing in this you know, society for so long um, that's controlled by uh, our white counterparts. I sometimes accidentally will say it. And so I, even I'm unlearning a little bit here and there and I feel that this tension that we have between our communities is not good, right? Say what you need to say. Yes, be frustrated. Show your anger because you know, I'm all for expressing our anger. I have a lot of anger inside of me and frustration and disappointment and deflation but this tension I feel should not exist between our communities and that we just need to like love each other a little bit more and sit and listen to one another and just hold each other and I feel that's what I've done in the bereavement room and if I can do that here you can do that too in your spaces like be nice speak kindly and i I have to say it, someone needs to bring it up. I'm not going to facilitate those conversations because my podcast is about death. You, need, you know, there is a more relevant space to talk about the tensions we have within our communities. And I should also mention there are lots of tensions within the South Asian diaspora. We also do not get on because of historical stuff and marginalisation and whiteness and all of that and British Empire. Gosh, it's so convoluted. We can't rewrite history, we can only learn from it. And I take that quote from my older sister, because whenever we engage in conversations about colonialism, she'll always say, Well, we can talk about this all day, but can't rewrite history. So what we're we gonna learn from it? What well, we 'cause that's all we can do. We have to learn from it and unlearn from it. I completely agree with her. So this divide, it's it's not worth it because if you think about it, um and let's think about this deeply, the impact that it has had on our ancestors, our grandparents, and our parents. You know, they went through so much. Have we not had enough divisions and generational trauma as it is that we continue now to just hate on each other? And it reminds me of a conversation that I had with my dad a couple of years ago, because I'd always sort of, you know, I'd curiously ask him about his life in the 50s in the United Kingdom and onwards and he said to me yeah things were pretty bad back then it was horrible people were getting stabbed to death the nf were causing chaos on the streets and it was terrible but we all stood together there wasn't this divide amongst races everyone came together you know then my dad reflected that doesn't seem to exist anymore it seems there's a divide amongst races um and that it's harder to cultivate solidarity. You have to work at it harder, whereas back in his day, it was a lot easier. Everyone just stood together and, you know, you fought oppression together, whereas now people have divided off into their spaces and the conversation around identity and race uh, has very much evolved and changed. I sort of agree with my dad. I think he he was right, Uh, his observations of solidarity. It's a lot harder to cultivate now than it was back in his day when he first came to Britain. And so now this takes me to my next observation and reflections that I have been thinking about over the past three seasons. Uh, We've talked a lot about intuition, gut feelings, regrets and grief. I find the word regrets somewhat harmful I feel that uh, the whole point of life and the contract we hold with it is a human experience, right? And hindsight will always be uncomfortable. It'll always be a bitch. If we could predict every single thing that is going to happen in life, we wouldn't be human. And that's the whole point of why we're here. That's my personal belief. I think regrets is a word that should be associated with crime regrets in grief is so rife and it's so common and we have that the shoulda the woulda the coulda if only i sent that text message if only i didn't skip that hospital visit if only i just you know called them back but i got busy and distracted with life even though my gut feeling was telling me oh you know you have to return that text or why didn't you turn around that morning and say goodbye Uh, That will always be memorable to me because I never got to say goodbye to them. And I I find that that this is hindsight, which is something that we all have as humans. We will always look back and be like, oh, if only I did that, or if I just made that small change and tweak, you know, if only... The shoulda, the would the couldas. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a song called Shoulda, Woulda, Coulda. Was it by Beverly Knight? I'm sure she sang a song about it. Um, I feel that hindsight is normal um, to be feeling the way that you do and reflecting on it to sort of go back and look at events as it unraveled and imagine it unraveling in a different way i think this is a normal part of who we are as human beings but this word regret, i'm a little bit apprehensive about it because to me feeling regretful and remorseful should be something that is associated with a crime if you haven't committed a crime or committed something is this the right word to use? Life was not given to us to be linear or whatever your belief system is. I think that we all share this commonality that it's not supposed to be linear. And if it was, we wouldn't feel the way that we do or look back at events in the way that we do. It's all just a human experience coming together. And so when I hear the word regrets, people often ask me, or oh, do you regret that? Well, I don't have any regrets because I haven't committed a crime. What I do feel is I am often very reflective in a a healthy manner. Uh, I think being reflective is good for your soul. And then on the flip side, I do have hindsight. Because I have often said to myself, Oh, damn it, if only you'd done this or you know, if you could go back in time, you'd probably change it, wouldn't you? And of course we would. If we could go back in a time machine, we would do things differently. We wouldn't have skipped that hospital visit. We would have not ignored that text message that we were sent and just kind of telling ourselves, oh, I'll text you later. And then by then it was too late because the person that we loved died. Or, uh, you know, returning a phone call, getting distracted, of course, if we could go back in time, we would do things differently, but we don't have that power, and I think that there's a reason why we don't have that power, and it is to kind of better us as human beings, to kind of, to learn from that experience, and I, I hear that people often say, you know, death isn't about, A learning experience, what have you learned? The learned lessons. True, at the end of the day, when someone you love has died, it's really shit. It's a horrible thing to go through. It's very isolating. And depending on the narrative, oh my goodness, it's just bloody awful. So, you know, there is no reason, there is no lesson to be learned. But I do find, and I'm speaking from my own personal experiences and what I've heard on the podcast. We all have taken something from this experience, um, whether it's being thankful for finding out who our real friends are. You know, we we heard from Lacani, uh earlier on in season one uh, when she spoke about her father. She said, there's nothing like a death to know who your real friends are. I really felt that. This is something that I experienced when I was in my 20s. I learned who my real friends were and who were not my friends. And subsequently, my address book drastically changed. You also learn about where to give your energy, um, how to manage your time. For me personally, I've become better at time management. And then on the flip side, grief is so overwhelmingly painful Sometimes we have to sit with what we're feeling and we have no control over it. Again, we heard in the room, when someone dies, there's nothing you can do. You can't go back in time. Uh, You have no control. I think it was Hartim in season three that talked about that. There is nothing we can do. And so when I think about this regrets, hindsight, um, it's all part of the human experience it's all part of this non-linear life that we live because let's face it, it's not linear. We will have some moments of it, you know, life being hunky-dory and reaching our milestones and things going perfectly. And then other times things do not go so well and we can't control that. I do feel that growth comes from these horrible experiences such as bereavement, such as poor mental health, loss of friendships and family members reviewing your values in fact for me my values have changed over time what my values were when i was a teenager to a young adult to uh, um now not so much of a young adult i see how my values have evolved from these human experiences and so i would say to you for the person that is listening to this where you feel guilt and regret and remorse did you commit a crime because I just think in grief depending on what your narrative is we haven't committed a crime to feel so regretful Um, but I do want to reiterate that regret seems like quite a harsh word and language is important I'm not saying I get language right all the time I don't and in this case I think we need to think about the language of it that we use when we are delivered this data this directive Um, of what this is telling us about our values and who we are as human beings. I hope that that wasn't too fluffy or wishy-washy and that this reflection in, in me sharing this reflection that it is somewhat helpful or gives you some food for thought. I now want to talk about being invited to the party on inclusion. I'm going to keep this one short and sweet. Value yourself. Don't work too hard for anyone's validation and acceptance. Create your own space. Value isn't defined by the dominant voices, particularly for black and brown people, where we tend to be in spaces with dominant forces, whether that's in school, in college, university, the workplace. Whatever it may be, we often find ourselves uh, a little bit submissive, I think, or being diluted. And it shouldn't be like that. And so you can take that control back by creating your own spaces, your own ventures, your own circle. And do we really need to wait to be invited? No, I don't think so. And I've only really learned this from doing Bereavement Room, where I was like, actually, I can create my own space uh where actually i can use my vision that others may not understand but i can find my people my tribe if you like and they will be out there somewhere who will want to help you out who will want to support you um and i've had a lot of that with bereavement room when i first started from some of my guests uh in season one where Uh, inputted into the podcast by contributing their experiences because they really wanted to help me out with this podcast because they believed in the purpose of it and what my objective was and my experiences and they're like no I really want to share my story in order to kind of help you because we need these these spaces um to be able to do that and there's not enough of them it's a gap and so I would say to you the person that's listening that wants to create something do it. It's, it's never going to be perfect. Do you think bereavement room was perfect? Um, no, not at all. I've learned a lot from podcasting and meeting people that I don't know and working with them and this facilitation of conversation that isn't always easy. So yeah, don't wait for the invite, create your own. And you can always ask if you really want an invitation to someone's space. Say, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. I'd love to get involved in some manner, in some way or other. Um, invite me to the table. And if they say no, you know where you stand. Uh, and then, of course, you also do hear that, well, if you're not invited to the space, just pull out a chair. You, <laughs> I love that one. I'm not invited here, but I'm just going to invite myself and pull out a chair. Always makes me chuckle you don't need anyone else's validation you are whole without anyone else's validation and acceptance validation and acceptance begins and ends with you which now takes me to workplace unions okay so the workplace is a very different experience for black and brown folk right we are held to a much higher standard of performance and it's very loaded a lot of biases conscious unconscious biases play out and we have these weird microaggressions it's difficult for black and brown people to be in the workplace I speaking from my own experiences I've not had the best time not the easiest ride some places have been okay other places not so much and there will always be a clash, I think, particularly if you're in these white majority workplaces, there's always gonna be someone that will have something to say about you that is not that is not good for your soul and can really destroy how you feel about yourself and your place in the world. I think when it comes to bereavement and compassionate leave, this is generally an issue regardless of what community you're from. I've had many letters from people all over where from all sectors where they've said to me you know this is the experience i went through when my loved one died and it was awful i I, you know i went back to work for a little while and then i left my workplace uh, they didn't, shouldn't have had to have left their workplace. The workplace should have accommodated for what they were going through because that's the whole point of having a decent benefits package, right? But it's tailored to you and your lifestyle and health and well-being and how to retain staff. But the workplace have a long way to go. And whilst they have a long way to go and embed better practice and you know, man, you know, know, helping support employees with mental health, well-being when something difficult happens in their life, whether it's bereavement or not. Cause we all have different circumstances. It's really essential that we invest in a union. I was very naive in my 20s. I didn't even know what union was. And even if I did kind of know, I didn't think that it was for me. I didn't think they'd protect me. I thought you'd have to be working in public sector, for example. And I I just didn't know how much of a benefit it was until perhaps, you know, a couple of years ago. And what I would say is if you're not a member of a union, there is online somewhere where you can compare all the unions based on the sector you work in. And it's so cheap. Like I only pay like £6 or £5 a month for uh, my membership and I get I get so much out of it. It's this, the resource, is the resources, uh, the, the advice, the discounts. It's so good, and it's a way to protect yourself. The other option, which I don't have, so I can't vouch for it because I don't have it, but it's something that I'm thinking about more and more. Which would have helped me in the past, but it's too late now. So I wonder how it might help me in the future. Is income insurance. Now, this is something to take very seriously. There's insurances for so many different things, and I feel that income insurance is uh, not flagged up enough in workplaces or talked about enough in the mainstream. And I would love to learn more about income insurance if someone here is listening that works in insurance um, or know someone that works in insurance where they specialize in that contact me because i would like to learn more about it maybe you could be a guest on my podcast preferably you would prefer someone from the black or brown community that understands income insurance and how it's helped them if you have those experiences we could maybe do a bonus episode about it but i want to raise it right now that income insurance is a really great way to protect yourself from these human experiences that we go through in life you know poor mental health grief bereavement taking time out loss of a job whatever it may be it's one to consider and I would definitely like to have a more open conversation with someone that specializes in that or know someone um, who does or perhaps they are um, paying monthly for income insurance and Maybe you want to talk to me about your experience. I'd love to learn more. Protecting yourself as an employee is so important. I have to be brutally honest. When someone dies, if you die, the organization you work for will replace you so fast. That's just how it is, right? Um brutally honest and some people may think this is quite an unfair perception or observation however i feel it is accurate in my mind perhaps this is a trauma response i don't know an organization will will replace you very very quickly when you die or someone you know has died and you're having a difficult time in the workplace they do not care okay unless they take well-being staff retention very seriously So therefore, being a member of a union, getting income insurance, is so essential to you and your life and who you are. And I really hope in me sharing that will help someone out there uh, that doesn't know about that, hasn't really thought about it, or is perhaps thinking about it. Join a union today and think about income insurance fakes. So now I delve into friendships coming of age. You know guides aren't always helpful, you can't follow a guide, life doesn't work like that, I'm not too much of a fan of the do's and don'ts, I do feel you need to walk in your journey and learn as it unravels. Grief doesn't come with instructions and nor should it. I wish it did but it just doesn't work like that. If you have been bereaved in your 20s and your address book changed, which mine did, I feel that we need to let things unravel so that we can learn about how we feel about it over time I don't think this is something that we can tightly manage and give lots of tips on because it will look different on everyone and we all react differently and I don't think it's about suppressing how we react or managing how we react I feel everything I feel that all you feel and want to say is valid if you're having a particularly hard time with friendships and talking about grief or bereavement or if you've been just very newly bereaved and you're struggling with the dynamics in your friendship circles you don't owe anyone anything we all know that when we've been bereaved you you stop owing people anything you you stop people pleasing because your values do change your outlook does change and so I would say to anyone that is navigating friendships, let it unravel as it is and feel what you need to feel and say what it is that you need to say. I don't believe in those do's and don'ts and those top tips and resources. Yeah, okay, they might be useful to read, but this isn't something you can manage and keep in order so that it's neat and tidy. I don't think that it's meant to be. Is there something you wish you knew about friendships and grieving? Oh, when I look back. Not really. I think I was very much my vulnerable self and people could not handle that because people could only meet you as deeply as they have met themselves. Was it their fault? No, they just had a lack of awareness. But I do feel, as I've spoken extensively on this podcast, on here in the room with all of my former guests, there is a basic etiquette. You know, Google is your friend. And those that do the conspiracy of silence, the disappearing act, the awkwardness, I really don't think it's the onus on the grieving person. We haven't got time to think about your awkwardness. Just head to Google. You're the one that needs tips and the do's and don'ts. Grieving people don't. And I often find that grieving people are having to Google how to navigate their friendships because they've been bereaved they've got poor mental health, they're going through something, the friends aren't there, they're not showing up or listening or they've done something to annoy them, which happened to me a lot in my 20s and I felt that I had to be the one to fix that, to people please, to be the one that has to get back to my old self before my mum died, I have to be the, you know, the old Colzuma, positive vibes, right? Life and soul of the party. And that was a real struggle for me. I, you know, it really impacted me and my personality and I found it so hard to have to, like, regulate my emotions and my feelings and how I was in certain social settings. And I don't think it's up to the grieving people to be responsible for that. I really do feel that it's everyone else in the environment, the friends, the cousins. Um that need to look at the do's and don'ts and the top tips, that need to read a book about how to support a grieving person. Because why Why is it my responsibility? I just don't believe that it is. Um, my mum just died. I'm having a difficult time. Your job is to show up and listen. Your job is to support me through this because my life has now changed. But for some weird reason, there is this onus on the grieving person of, oh, don't shut everyone out, do this, don't do this, don't isolate yourself. No, Uh, hello, friends, you do the work and support your grieving person, because I don't think it should 100% be down to the griever to do the educating, because We're just learning ourselves that what we've just gone through, this absolutely huge, massive thing that's happened in our lives, like as if I'm going to be sitting here trying to make you feel comfortable. Uh Uh-uh, doesn't work like that in my mind. It just, it just, I, I can't make sense of that personally. And as I've gotten older, it still does not make sense to me. And I feel that the books, the top tips, the do's and don'ts need to be for the... People that are not grieving that are supporting the grieving person. You guys need all of the resources, right? The goatees and all the googling. Let the grieving person grieve. Let them change because we will change. Let them deal with what they're dealing with. You should not be making it worse. And, you know, friendships are hard anyway because when you have a bereavement during your young adult years, your teen years, you're still working out what your identity is you know you're still navigating life Um, grieving young is quite hard I when I think about how it changed my life in my 20s to where I am now people say I'm unrecognizable you know the spark that I used to have in my eye died and yeah it did Looking back, I am ultimately more in my skin now, more my authentic self, uh, and have people that love and care about me, albeit there may only be a one or two or three poor people that really care, but if you've got one person, that's enough, you don't need the world, and you don't need an entourage of, of people to be by your side, because they won't be when you die, do you know what I mean, like they won't always be there. Friendships are a tricky one and I did want to cover it off because we spoke about it so much on the podcast and I had very strong feelings about how we navigate our friendships when we are grieving and it, it does, you know, as the saying goes, it does change your address but and we've got a role with that as it happens. There's no way to really manage that. I'm not gonna sit here and give you the do's and don'ts and the top tips. I believe in things unraveling as they are and dealing with it as it is because we can't regulate these experiences. And I think that we understand them better as they happen and as time goes on and we have space to reflect on these events. Right, so let's talk about Muslim mental health. I'm Muslim, so I have to cover it off. This may also apply to anyone else that is people of the book, any other religion, belief system, faith that you have, spirituality, I hope this helps. Um, I contend with Muslim mental health on a daily basis. And there are a lot of things that have come to surface in recent times that I didn't think about or know about when I was younger. Alcohol is one of them. Liquor, being Muslim and drinking. I'm not gonna go into too much detail about that. It's something that I will perhaps cover off at another time in the future. There are many layers to Muslim mental health when you are falling in and out of your faith uh, during a difficult period in your life. One thing that I don't like is when you're grieving and you're in pain and there are no reflective conversations happening. Instead, there is this knee-jerk response, have sobor, which I'll translate into English, is patience. Do this to upkeep your practices. Pray harder. I I don't like that. I know what to do to upkeep keep my practices. I know what sobot is and I feel that many people take the patience thing out of context and don't use it for what it was given to us for, what it was designed to be. It's now this sort of generic term that is banded about left, right and centre to silence your pain and I don't like that. I'm going to be honest to all of my Muslim followers. You know what I'm talking about. There needs to be more space for open conversations about our fears when it comes to to talk about the afterlife and what the afterlife might be like, to talk about our dean and whether we're feeling like we're on our Dean or not on our Dean, you know, falling out with it on a Monday and falling in love with it on a Friday. <laughs> They're just not enough reflection there is also this hidden thing where many people you know are turning to drugs alcohol or peer pressure in the workplaces to kind of survive the workplace to thrive in the workplace and it then leading to overstepping the boundaries i guess of religion and who you are and this is something that i personally have struggled with over time I think for Muslims and anyone with a you know strong beliefs about the afterlife the best way to say this is by reading out a very long caption that I wrote in my personal spaces that I shared with everyone a couple of weeks ago you know, I've heard a lot over the past two years that my faith is weakened, or I question my faith during turbulent testing times. And it is so scary for that person that's faced with that, confusing, sometimes coupled with immense feelings of sadness and guilt it's made worse by the people in the environment that dismiss these feelings of doubt or despair during a during a trying time to silence their pain with the religious spill that i mentioned earlier oh it's in allah's hands god's hands have sobor right pray harder You're doing more harm than good to the person that opened up to you. Let them grieve the changes in their life without coming in with the religious stuff, the nonsensical platitudes and commentary. I want to tell you that struggling with faith is normal. It's normal to ask why and to feel sad and grieve your human experiences when you have doubts. As I said, falling out with faith on a Monday, falling in love with it on a Friday right? Because it happens, we fall in and out of it. We are bound to hit some bumps in life. Life wasn't given to us to be perfect and deal with things perfectly. In fact, it's very messy. Sometimes it can help strengthen your faith or give you a different perspective, a newfound one, A spiritual awakening, if you like, whichever way it goes. And that's the whole point of human experiences. It's not a sign of your level of faith when we grieve or have doubts about our faith. However, one thing I cannot stand is people gaslighting your feelings when you are sad and in despair. Use the two ears God gave you and hang in the sadness with the person that's going through a hard time in life. You spouting on about religion and patience have sober, you know, pray harder. It's not helping. And so on a personal note, I can honestly say doing my podcast over the past two years and my dad's unexpected death has helped me try and review how I manage my time and energy. It's a work in progress and I'm learning a lot from it. It's not something I can easily nail. I do feel the spiritual truth reveals itself to you when you least expect and so me sharing this reflection on muslim mental health and there's so much to it i've literally touched the surface there's a bigger conversation to be had about it and how it impacts us um please do so have those open conversations in your spaces be reflective if you want to talk about what life might be like in the afterlife or whether you think you'll not make it to the afterlife I feel we need to share those fears, otherwise it's not going to, It's it will, you know, it will hurt as you carry that, and finding the right people to talk to about that, there are lots of Muslim grassroots initiatives out there that may be able to help for anyone that is going through this, where they just feel they're being told to pray harder, or that their level of faith has weakened, no, what's happened is, you're going through a difficult testing time in your life whatever religion or belief system you're from, you've not fallen out with your faith. You're going through a hard time, a human experience. Those that are telling you otherwise, pray harder, have sobor. Please be careful about how you use the term have patience, right? Use it in the way that it was designed to be used. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and Google because patience was not given to us. To silence and shame. It's not helpful to say, you know, have Sobor. It's not about minimizing your pain, being passive, and not taking action, right? We need to get to the bottom of what the true meaning of sobor is. And I feel that it's lost its true meaning in this day and age because people are banding it about left, right, and centre to shut people down. Sobor is a beautiful thing in the face of Human experiences, life's tests and trials. And whilst we walk in that and live in the face of pain, we need to start using it in the context it was given to us and designed for. And that's all I really want to end on with Muslim mental health. There is more to be said, and I hope that you will have deeper, reflective conversations with the right people in your space about that if this is something that is impacting you right now, because it has for many of us that have entered this room and talked about our lived experiences. Now moving on to invisible disabilities, some of you may or may not know I live with invisible disabilities. I'm also someone who's living with grief and depression since my dad died. Just because I was the host of this podcast and I founded this space, it doesn't mean I'm exempt from human experiences. Yes, this podcast was done well. People loved it. So many of you wrote in to me. It was a source of support and healing. However, I want to emphasize that as the host, I'm not exempt from pain. The heaviness that comes from creating a space like this. I hope that creating Bereavement Room demonstrated throughout all of the episodes and my opening and closing messages what it means to have created a podcast like this. It didn't exist prior to me coming here and now I can see there's a shift. People are starting to be a bit more conscious about the types of guests that they invite onto their podcasts about being more inclusive uh, in the conversation understanding that sure grief is universal but the narrative around bereavement is not particularly when it comes to marginalization, uh, minoritized communities and systemic racism something that we really need to bear in mind when we do have these conversations and when we are opening up these spaces for open conversation because you have to be mindful of what one has gone through and their experience of the world their belonging essentially and what their traumas are we we've heard in this room in fact from some of my former guests that have talked about decolonizing those that are decolonizing their life now because of close proximities to whiteness which we all have i think all south asians and black people minoritized communities have that if you think about it if you look at our history uh, the society that we live and breathe going to work, getting on the bus, the interactions that we have, have a history of grief, right? Intergenerational trauma that gets passed down, that is now being uh, unpacked by second, third, fourth generations. And it shouldn't have been like that, but this is what our ancestors and our grandparents and parents went through. So you've got to be mindful. I just want to say, you know, I'm someone that lives with a lot and Yeah, I did this podcast well and I'm very proud of it. I'm very thankful for the strength that was lended to me. But I am not immune to what is happening in this room and the conversations that I had because... To be able to facilitate a conversation like this, you do need to be skilled. You do need to think about what it is that you're going to ask. And it does leave you with a lot. It's not just press record and forget about it. Uh, I have to be real with you. The last two and a half years over these three seasons, I have felt a bit oversaturated at times. And I have had had to think about that carefully, the burnout, what it means to take a step back. And actually where does this end you know where does it begin bereavement room is not a cic it's not a charity uh there's no five-year ten-year plan so many people that have phoned me over the last few years i have said to me so what is bereavement rooms 10-year plan and i'm like it's a podcast that i created out of my personal journey out of discrimination i'm really not trying to turn that into a business or commodify my grief in any way but what i needed back then that I never had, you know, when I was in my 20s, or what I needed when my brother had died, I found a space by carving out my own space, but I just want to be clear, I am not immune, right, as the host, I'm not exempt from human experiences, I have my own stuff that I carry, and it is very, very heavy, and in order to do a podcast like this, you know, who wakes up and says, I want to interview lots of strangers and listen to their stories and experiences. There's not many people that will do that. Let's be real here. I did mention that at the end of season two. And of course, I'm not sort of looking for anyone to say, oh, you know, you did such an amazing thing. Well done, etc., etc. et cetera. I just want to acknowledge that that is hard and it's not an easy thing to do to sit in this host seat. And equally, it's harder also being in the guest seat, and I've had that experience, and have I enjoyed it? Sometimes, other times not so much. Being vulnerable is a strength I feel. However, it doesn't come easily, especially when you know so much of what we've said is so deeply moving and deeply personal. Uh, it's in the public domain, and I want people to appreciate all of my former guests and myself for having spoken about our experiences so publicly because this is not something to be underestimated or undermined. it is a lot of blood sweat and tears and heavy work a huge step to kind of have an open conversation like this when we so often don't it's not the societal norm is it so we are reaching the end inevitably gosh can't believe how quickly time has flown in this room and I've I've loved it I've learned a lot about myself I've met some incredible people it has been an honor a a real privilege to have done this podcast it will stay with me for life and so I do want to say to you all that are listening it's coexistence or no existence life is for living even when something ends take what you need leave when you want And this is what I am doing. You know, lots of people love coming into my inbox and saying to me, oh, you were here for such a short amount of time and now you're exiting the space. Well, what do you want me to do? Um, You know, it's, it's just not realistic for me to carry on. I have other dreams. I have other hopes. I'm a lover of life and experiences as much as i have enjoyed this podcast i have to coexist with what i am carrying as i said earlier i carry my own stuff and i've mentioned it throughout this episode we all carry things in our daily life in our professions and this is the right time for me to kind of say yes it's coexistence or no existence and i i have to now kind of move forward with my life away from this podcast because it has reached its end, it's life's end. And as I say, take what you need and leave when you want, I think about this more than ever, that my last living parent is no longer in this world. Did I tell you what reflection can be like when your last living parent dies? Well, it's like re-watching and re your entire life. The thinking changes it's shifted in a way I've never imagined it would. I now more than ever think about my dad and his life, the sacrifices he made. You always hear about how South Asian kids get a lot of pressure to be the best, to overachieve. And honestly, I'm so thankful, right? Either way, my dad still loved me unconditionally, even when I was failing. I've never felt so loved This is a love that I know I will never experience ever again. And so a defining point for me on this podcast was my father's death. Because it was so unexpected, this is what changed the course of this podcast. It was only ever meant to be one season and then it turned into three. And I want people to really think about that and think about what that means because I think if my dad had not died this would have only have been one season and I would have been gone because what I had planned for bereavement room it just turned into completely something else it it flipped over on its head and I never imagined I'd do three seasons uh, it would have a worldwide listen and it would get 10,000 downloads and people would be talking about it and writing letters to me it was not really meant to go that way I wanted to make a point about discriminations and which I did very heavily on this podcast because this is where it all stems from but I really just wanted to talk about you know the workplace counselling and psychotherapy the intersections with grief and mental health and my experiences with my mum and brother Uh, I wasn't expecting the podcast to go where it went and I honestly think that it's just because my dad died And I do think the universe has this funny way of making things happen at a certain time. When I look at the timing of this whole podcast, and it has supported me at a time that I really needed, with my dad dying, and then a worldwide lockdown, working from home, grieving in lockdown. We've heard about what it's like to grieve in a lockdown on this podcast. Not easy. How do you recover from that? You know? Uh, especially if you're living alone or you're not able to see your family you know a lot of us had to reunite with our families mu- many months later and there were those of us that never got to reunite with our family members we didn't even get to say goodbye to them when they died so it's one of those things that I think about the timing it's a little bit of a speaky thing and I just wonder if the universe had planned this all and I was lended this strength at this particular time because it was necessary, it was needed. And so I ask you to think about that too, um, if you're superstitious and uh, philosophical like I am. And so now I'm sad to say that our time in this room has now come to an end. It has been deeply moving and deeply personal. I would like to give thanks and gratitude to all of my former guests, everyone that donated for season three, my lovely listeners, Family and friends, before I bid you farewell, I want to personally say to marginalised, minoritized communities to black and brown folk, to myself. May we find coexistence in all we carry. May we be seen and witnessed when we enter spaces. May we be protected from discrimination. Leaning into our heritage, faith and values if we ever feel lost. And finally, May we find joy after all we have endured, remembering our loved ones no longer with us. And so that's all, folks. I'm hanging up the microphone. From me, your host, Kulsima Ali, thank you for listening. Take good care of yourselves. Goodbye.